You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. I'm Berta Twisselman, one of the BMJ's web editors. This week, we have a couple of articles going online about Clubfoot. Kirsten Patrick, one of the BMJ's assistant editors, will be giving us a quick history of the treatment of the condition. She'll also be talking to Andrew Hogg, a junior doctor who went to South Africa and ended up making a film for parents to explain about the Ponsetti treatment. There's not many real cures in medicine, but I think this is, this is, um, this is one of them. Another hot topic this week is data sharing. This is very common in basic science, and it's often a part of the conditions of a grant that researchers share their results. But it's not so easy in medicine. E. coli doesn't mind if you tell the world about its various problems, but patients participating in trials might. Data sharing can help science, though. So can health researchers share their data safely? Trish Groves tells us how. Even though studies are often very anonymised, when you open up an entire data set, it might be that there's enough information there for participants, for patients, to actually be able to spot themselves. But before all that, I'm joined by Deborah Cohen, who's here with the news. Hi, Deb. Hi, Berta. So what have you got for us this week? Well, the lead story this week is about a rotavirus vaccine that has had trials done on it. There's been a, and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. There's a randomised control trial that was done in South Africa and Malawi. And there was an observational study that was done in Mexico. Now, rotavirus is the leading cause of diarrhoea that kills more than 500,000 children under five years old every year and puts many more in hospital. So these trials are quite important and they were funded by the Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunisations. What the Mexican study found was that the vaccine can reduce diarrhoea-related mortality by 41 and that was in the under 11 months age group. The other age group was that they looked at was between 12 months and 23 months, but, but it's worth remembering that only 10 to 15% of these people have been vaccinated and the number of diarrhoea-related deaths fell by 29%. Um, the other study, the randomised control trial in South Africa and Malawi, a total of 4,939 children under the age of 12 months were assigned to either receive vaccine or placebo. And severe rotavirus gastroenteritis occurred in 4.9% of the children in the placebo group compared to 1.9% of those in the vaccine groups, giving a vaccine efficacy of around 61%. This really plays into a feature in the BMJ this week that looks at the Millennium Development Goals, specifically the Millennium Development Goals 4 and 5. And in 2008, an estimated 8.8 million children died before their fifth birthday. And that's from all sorts of causes. But one of those causes were diarrhoea. Actually, the the cause of death, the greatest cause of death in in children under five is, is pneumonia. So... This is just one of the ways that this is being tackled. And, it's, and it is slightly controversial. Not everybody believes vaccines are the way forward, but, but it has made, clearly has made a dent in Mexico and in South Africa and Malawi. That's it for vaccination. Anything else you've got for us? Another story that has been dominating, well, certainly the US press, but it's also um, crept into the UK press, and it's one the BMJ has been keeping an eye on for a while, is the healthcare reform debate in... Uh, in the US, um, as we know, approximately 50 million Americans are uninsured. 
And one of Obama's key things that he wanted to do when when he was elected was to reform healthcare. Now, this has hit a bit of a snag in Massachusetts, which ironically was um, um, Democrat Ted Kennedy's seat, and he was a big campaigner on universal access to healthcare. There's been an election of a Republican called Scott Brown. Now, the Senate and Senate has only just passed their version of the health um, reform bill, and they had, and they did have up until this election a sixty forty majority. What this means is it really undermines healthcare reform in the US. Uh, Doug Camro, our US expert and associate editor of the BMJ, has written also written a column about this. What this means, I mean, there's several different things that can happen, but what this means is this might mean big compromises about healthcare. And he actually sadly kind of concludes that perhaps their opportunity has been lost for good. So this is a story that will go on and on and on, but it, it's one that the BMJ touches on, touches on this week. And what's your final story for this week, Deb? Well, we've got a bit of a light-hearted one. I'm serious, but but light-hearted. And Labour MP Paul Flynn, um, he's Labour MP for Newport West, uh, wants to grit the roads with the leftover Tamiflu. Well, as one of our bloggers on Dr Doc said, uh, probably won't even last that long. So so let's see what, what remains of that. <laughs> so thanks for that, Deb. And uh, moving on, um, Kirsten Patrick now talks about Clubfoot. This week on BMJ.com, we've published two articles that talk about Clubfoot. One is a clinical review of the condition, and the other is an obituary of Ignacio Ponsetti, who pioneered the currently most commonly used technique. Clubfoot was first recognised in the ancient world. Egyptian tomb paintings appear to depict it, and the father of medicine Hippocrates wrote the first account of it in around... 400 BC. Interestingly, we seem to have come full circle with the treatment of clubfoot, and we're now using techniques that are similar to those that Hippocrates described back in 400 BC, but more of that in a bit. In early days, various techniques of manipulation and bracing were used to try and correct the clubfoot, but none of them was entirely successful or replicable when other physicians tried them. From when aseptic surgery began to the end of the 20th century, the most common technique to correct the condition involved extensive surgery. This may have been combined with manipulation, but also involved multiple tenotomies and often breaking of the bones of the feet. Though this made the foot appear more normal when it was corrected, it was often associated with stiffness and discomfort and a residual limp in later life. In the 1950s, Ignacio Ponsetti began to experiment to change the way we treat clubfoot. Going back to manipulative techniques, but using a modern understanding of the way tissues react to stress and the interplay between small bones of the feet, he devised a new technique which used sequential plastering and subsequent bracing to gently stretch the various components of the foot until they align correctly. The only surgical procedure that's commonly carried out is an Achilles tenotomy, that is cutting or dividing the Achilles tendon. This is because the Achilles tendon is usually too tight for the equinus deformity to be passively corrected. As the technique is largely non-surgical, it can be carried out cheaply and easily in locations where traditional clubfoot treatment would have been impossible. We caught up with Andrew Hogg, who's a GP trainee in the UK now, but for 18 months, 
In 2006, he worked at Nguelezan Hospital in eastern KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. There he treated many children who suffered from clubfoot, and he even created a video to inform parents that you can see on bmj.com. This helped parents to comply with the lengthy treatment. Andrew, how many children were you treating in your clubfoot clinic at Nguelezan? By the time I left, we had the best part of 200 children. You would see all the new kids and you'd see all the returners and um, you would do all the plasters. And if you consider that each child stays with you for about three years, then, you know, that, that multiplies into quite a lot of clinic appointments. How good were the parents are coming back to the clinic again and again? Sometimes they didn't turn up for various different reasons. And, you know, it was part of the problem, really, and part of how I got interested in making the videos because... You know, it was frustrating when they didn't turn up or they turned up and they hadn't put the boots on properly or they hadn't put them on at all. Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult thing for the parents to do, I reckon. It takes some kind of commitment, even in a first-world setting. What sort of percentage of the children would the parents do it right? Maybe maybe half of them would, would do it right, you know, most of the time, and then perhaps the other half, they would get it right some of the time, and then maybe the, a minority would just really struggle with it. In the in the video, you show children walking at the end of treatment, mm. and um, they're walking limp-free. And yeah. Was that a, a common outcome? Well, I, I think for the majority of children who are affected by club foot, if they go through the treatment correctly, then about 90% of them can expect a successful outcome, that is, a pain-free, flexible foot. Club foot treatment, you know, I think... It's, it's just got such a wonderful outcome. You know, you've got um, these children who are potentially crippled for life who are, to all intents and purposes, cured by the, the treatment from this fantastic professor. There's not many real cures in medicine, but I think this is, this is, um, this is one of them. If Ponsetti's treatment didn't exist, would you have been able to help as many children as you did? The, the alternative to Ponsetti's treatment really was surgical correction. I think we, we wouldn't have been able to treat so many children because Ponsetti's method is something that you can do in the clinic on the large part. We only had a limited amount of operating time at our hospital um, and it was swamped with trauma. It would have been difficult for us to fit in a lot of club foot operations. There was a lot of surgery uh, that we would have liked to have done uh, at Nguelezan that we just couldn't do just due to the demands um, placed on the operating theatre. We actually have an obituary for Ponsetti on yeah. bmj.com this week. He died a month or two back, didn't he? Yeah, he did in October. Yeah, that was, that was a real shame. I mean, he was working up right up until he was in his 90s. mid-90s. Yeah. I remember my, my boss emailed him about some details to do with the club foot treatment because we had... I'd only just started it just shortly before I arrived and he was um, not all that familiar with it and uh, we got an email back from him and he, he must have been, you know, 90-odd mm. and he's, he's busy working with these children and sending emails and, you know, he really was, uh, he really was a, um, an inspiration to uh, anybody working in medicine, I think. Thanks, Andrew. You can read more about the treatment of Clubfoot in the Clinical Review and the story of Ignacio Ponsetti in his obituary.
And you can read all those articles and more online on bmj.com. Now, Duncan Jarvis finds out about the best way for health researchers to share their data. I'm joined now by Trish Groves, one of the BMJ's deputy editors, who looks after the research section. Now, Trish, there was a research methods and reporting published online this week talking about data sharing. Now, in an ideal world, why should researchers share their data? Well, first of all, what we're talking about is not just what they put in their articles, in their research papers. It's about data that otherwise probably wouldn't be published. And what we want people to do is to consider whether they've got data that they've analysed and processed in some way, but aren't actually going to use in further studies but other researchers might be able to use them. So if that's the case, then in an ideal world, if they could make those data available to other researchers, then much more value can be got out of that data set. And hopefully that in the end will help uh, patients. And you mentioned human beings there. I mean, obviously that brings in patient consent problems. And that's what this RML is talking about. Yes, but what they're saying is even though studies are often very anonymised, the data are often very anonymised. When you open up an entire data set, it might be that there's enough information there for participants, for patients, to actually be able to spot themselves. Because if you have information like, well, there's this condition, it's rather unusual, there's this treatment, there's this history, there's this many hospital um, admissions, then suddenly you think, well, there's only a few people that could be, I think that's me. And nobody asked if this information could be put in the public domain. This article we've published this week says, well, exactly what are the items that would make somebody who thought they were anonymous become identifiable again? And they have looked at policy documents and articles from many international sources and have come up with a list of 28 identifiers that researchers really need to think about when they're trying to ensure that their data sets are still anonymous. Okay, so are they suggesting that people still publish their data sets but remove some of this extra identifiable information? They're very clear that you should take out the direct stuff like names and addresses and phone numbers or anything like that. And that's kind of obvious. But they're also suggesting that if you have at least three of these more indirect identifiers, then the risk that that person will be able to at least spot themselves goes up dramatically. And therefore, they're suggesting that anybody who's going to open up a data set with such identifiers should run it by someone else. Run it by an independent researcher and say, what do you think? Do you think this is risky? And if that's not enough and you're still concerned, then you should perhaps go back to a research ethics committee. Now, the other thing that researchers might worry about is publishing their data, and then that means that someone else might gazump them, I suppose, on a, on a paper. What would you say to that? Yeah, well, sure. There's a whole thing that uh, many people's careers depend on, getting good work published in good journals. So, yes, some people feel understandably rather protective of the data that they feel are their data, although other people will argue, well, they're not your data because you didn't pay, pay to gather <laughs> yes. them. Sure, you did the work and we hugely appreciate that and you should have due credit. But after a period, perhaps, when authors have had a chance to do all the studies they were planning to do and have moved on to some other field of work, then perhaps after a period of fair use, the data sets could be shared. So that's that's another possibility. This is really a very big debate, a broad debate, but it's one that's gathering steam. And many organisations such as the Wellcome Trust and the Medical Research Council are looking mm-hmm. hard at this. And there are all sorts of people saying, we need to do this sooner rather than later. And the really important thing is that anybody who's planning a study now, or indeed is building 
some kind of database such as a biobank or a, a registry of patients ought to think now not just do I have your consent to include your details and perhaps even your your tissue samples in this data set? Do I have your permission to do research on it? Perhaps also need to say, and do I have your permission to get that research published and at some point to open up the whole data set, which is quite a lot to ask. But if you don't ask it now and in 10 years' time, somebody asks you to open up your data set and you don't have consent, you're stuck. So does that mean data sharing always leads to better science? There is a big statistical danger that it's very easy to cheat. If you if you look at some data and you look for patterns in the data and you look for associations and think, ah, oh, here seems to be a positive link, mm-hmm. you can kind of work backwards from that to a research question and build a study. It's a bit like reading the end of an Agatha Christie book and knowing who done it and then going back to the beginning and reading the whole thing and pretending you didn't know. It's sort of scientifically wrong and it may be meaningless because a lot of those associations will have arisen by chance. And if you, it's very, quite easy to then retrospectively write a paper suggesting that you had this open mind mm. and you had no idea what was going to happen and you went away and did some analyses and, oh, look, this came out as a positive association. It's definitely scientifically wrong. So that's another great concern with this. And all of these things need to be debated. Great. Thanks, Trish. And that article in our Research Methods and Reporting section is now available for free on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week... We'll be asking if physicians have any place in torture. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.